Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. St. John Associates is a physician recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They have an orthopedic surgery team who has over 16 years and hundreds of matches in the ortho market at no cost to physicians. Get started with your job today at stjohnjobs.com slash ortho. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring Drs. Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Dr. Woolwan, we are we are back again uh, to talk some more orthopedics and uh, talk some more pediatrics, man. Yeah, looking forward to this. <laughs> oh, very much so. <laughs> yeah, I think we were saying before, uh, you know, a little off air, but Man, I thought like doing the hand notes was was rough, but man, these P notes, these this is this was a this was a task to say the yeah. least. But uh, <laughs> you know, <laughs> we'll get through it. Yeah, I guess in in practice, the the good thing is that kids are like amphibians; they'll just they'll regrow anything that they break. But on on paper, it is quite the uh, quite the daunting task. Yeah, so I guess we can go ahead and get started with just I guess some pediatric trauma and um in in general, what are just some differences between adult and pediatric bones? Yeah, so pediatric bones they're typically more elastic. They have a much much thicker periosteum, uh, and they really have the capability, which is nice for bone remodeling due to their open physis. And um, this will come into play later when we talk about um like genuvalgus or genuvarum and uh, ways to kind of guide the growth uh, to correct either knock knees or bow legs. But um, they, they typically are just much more um, uh, favorable in terms of their ability to heal, which is good in a traumatic setting. Um, And one of the most kind of classic uh, trauma classifications for the pediatric world is the Salter Harris classification. What, what's kind of the the different types of the Salter Harris? Yeah. So this is going to be one of the classifications for all these like physio fractures. Um, and so it comes in five types and I, th- I feel the best way to remember this is if you just Google a picture of it, it has S-A-L-T-E-R and then it goes by type one, two, three, four, and five. So type one is you have a slip or a, a physial separation. Type two is a fracture uh, exits uh, above the physis, um, which is kind of going into the metaphyseal area. Um, type three, the fracture exits below the physis. Type four, the fracture is through the metaphysis, the epiphysis, and the physis. Then type five is a crush injury to the to the physis. So again, if you just Google Salter Harris classification and you look at a picture, it has a nice like kind of acronyms of s is first straight across a is type two above l is type three or lower or below t is type four and that's two or through and then type five is er and that's kind of the crush injuries um, yeah so i uh, um one thing that helps me um just because like i i understand the above and the below the physis um and they uh they differentiate that though because you when you talk about like a a distal femur fracture versus a proximal tibia fracture, something that's above the physis 
in a distal femur fracture is metaphyseal, but if it's above the physis in a proximal tibia, it can go into the epiphysis. And that always just confused me. And so all of the residents, because I still teach this to them, because uh, I still see pediatric fractures too in my tumor practice, um, is uh, I'll tell them that a type two, think of it as uh, metaphyseal or metuphyseal. Um, and I, they kind of give me some, some grief about that just because of its <laughs> made up, made up word. But for me, it just, it helps me remember that a type two is a metaphyseal because it's metuphyseal, uh, in that, uh, aspect. No, man, no, you're, you're, uh, your things help me remember stuff, man. All these, all these different, the, these different clues. I even remember we were talking about like the non-nitrogen bisphosphonates. I remember you saying, something like the three letters of ATP remind you of the other three letters for those three. Yep. So that's, that stuck in my head for some reason, but there are many things that you've said <laughs> that have stuck in my head. Um, but moving forward. So I guess what are some important notes in, in when we're like looking at and talking about the evaluation, resuscitation and transportation of pediatric trauma patients? So just like uh, with adults, you're still focusing on kind of the, a, B, C, D, and E's of trauma. So the airway, the breathing, um, their circulation, their environment, um, and then any other distracting injuries for that A, B, C, D, E. Because kids have uh, a greater uh, ability to kind of fluctuate their their blood pressure and their heart rate, heart rate to maintain perfusion, um, they they can trick you a little bit. They they can appear fairly stable even when they're kind of on that cusp of uh, decompensating. And so, if their veins seem quite dry and you're not able to get an IV line, you can always opt for an intraosseous line uh, into the medial proximal tibia, and you can always give a fairly large amount of fluid that way. Um, one thing to just keep in mind is you have to make sure that the, the needle you're using is of the correct length um, and that you take out the intraosseous line as soon as you have IV access somewhere else. Um, I have seen a compartment syndrome in the leg because of an IO line twice. One was from a needle that was too long, and so they actually punctured through the anterior and posterior cortex, and they Ooh. just fused a liter of saline into the posterior compartment of the leg. And I've also seen a uh, osteomyelitis because they just less left the IO line in, even though they had a central line already placed, and the IO line was just kind of forgotten about, and it was in for a week, and then they developed osteomyelitis in the leg. So make sure that it's it's a very temporary type of um, uh, resuscitative uh, measure. Um, and then uh, another thing to keep in mind, because all kids have gigantic heads compared to the rest <laughs> of their body, um, you can't transport them on a flat uh, table like you would an adult. Uh, like if you're concerned about a C-spine injury, um, you have to use a table that has a cutout for their head because the occiput 
will protrude more posterior and you don't want to have that head flex while you're transporting the patient. So they have to have an occiput cut out in the head. Um, those are just kind of some important notes about um, managing some of these patients out in the field. And then uh, it's, it's not fun to talk about, but it's always tested on boards and it's always a concern when you're working in a pediatric ER or you're a pediatric orthopedic surgeon. Um, what are some of the signs of non-accidental trauma? Yeah. So, you know, this is going to be like skin bruising in different healing stages. And I think that's the most like common or that's the, like, that's the number one test question is like skin bruising on different healing stages. Um, other things that they can have, like anybody that's not walking or like less than one year old that has a fracture, you got to be concerned or at least think about non-accidental trauma. Um, multiple fractures in different healing stages. Like they may show you like a bone scan, not a bone scan. They may show you like an x-ray that shows these different um, healing fractures, uh, retinal hemorrhages, and any long bone or head injuries. Those are all things that should have you concerned uh, for non-accidental trauma. And we have seen it on like the questions of like, you know, you, you see this and they'll ask like, you know, what's, what are some of the signs? And one will be like skin bruising at different healing stages, or they'll show you all these things. They'll put in the question stem. And then the answer will be like, you need, you need to get social work involved as soon as possible, things like that. And I guess just from a pure orthopedic standpoint, what are some like fracture patterns that are concerning for non-accidental trauma? Uh, it used to be um, like long bone uh, fractures. You were always concerned about that. At least that was the teaching kind of 15, 20 years ago, but now it's kind of turned into a uh, you want to look for these metaphyseal corner injuries. And essentially what they are are uh, crush injuries of either the medial or lateral aspect of the physis from a twisting and pulling force that then leads to a slight shear force on the uh, epiphysis on the metaphysis. So you could say that they are kind of Salter-Harris type 2 uh, injuries because they do exit through the distal end of the metaphysis, but they're right at the corner of where the metaphysis and the physis meet. Um, rib fractures and uh, especially posterior rib fractures because of people like holding and gripping onto a baby's chest too tight. And then transverse femur fractures. The, the spiral fractures are less concerning because the uh, twisting type injuries, um, they unfortunately sometimes just happen. Uh, accidents happen. We all understand that. So the, and you're trying to catch a baby or you're trying to move a baby, get them out of a, a dangerous situation and you twist their leg a wrong way and you get a spiral fracture. That's one thing, but uh, a less than 12 month old should never get a transverse femur fracture with uh without a very uh very legit story behind why they got their transverse femur fracture because they are non-weight bearing and a transverse femur fracture is a high energy injury and if if there's no uh documentation of a high in inner high energy uh uh accident then um, that's highly likely that that's a non-accidental trauma sort of injury. And, um, and there's always people who are like, well, what, what do I do in this situation? If 
if I'm concerned about it? it what's what should you do if there's even a slight bit of concern? Yeah, I mean, you just got to report it. You know, in in docs are I think we're all required to report it in all the states. Uh, and really anywhere, if you suspect it, you should report it, you know, get social worker involved and uh, and kind of go down that pathway. Yeah, it's much better to be to be wrong about it than it is to miss it. Yep, totally agree. And uh, in switching gears and, and I guess going moving towards more upper extremity um, pediatric trauma. So with pediatric trauma, like a lot of the things are similar to adult with like some minor differences for peds. So. We try to touch on the big, the the bigger topics that are a little bit different from adults. So, uh, for a more thorough discussion of a lot of this trauma, you can check out the adult section. Uh, but we'll continue on. So, what is the likely injury when you suspect a medial clavicle fracture in like a pediatric patient or so? Yeah, you're going to think that it's more of a physial type injury because the uh, medial uh, clavicle physis actually doesn't fuse until you are much older. Uh, around 24, 25 years old. And so not that it really matters in terms of what you may do for management, but just know that um, the medial clavicle physis fuses a lot later than other bones and that you can get a physial injury up until you're about 25 years old. And um, I have a couple patients with this in clinic actually, but uh, how, what's the treatment for a sternoclavicular dislocation? Yeah, this is going to be similar to the to the adult ones when we talked about it. But for the anterior ones, for the majority of them, you can treat them non-operatively. So you start with a non-operative trial. And for the posterior ST dislocations, you know, remember the if that if the clavicle goes posteriorly, you have a lot of bad things behind your clavicle. You have you know the the vessels, the mediastinum. So ideally, for these posterior ones, which you can identify on a CT scan, um, a little bit easier or a serendipity view of the sc joint so again it's going to be a serendipity view for x-ray and ct scan it, it gets you a little bit of better view but for these posterior sc dislocations uh, you want to try to reduce these hopefully percutaneously if you can and i think you still want to have maybe a cardiothoracic surgeon on standby and we actually well actually no i wasn't in there but one of our attendings had one of these a couple of weeks ago and i think it was like this chronic posterior um sc dislocation and I mean, we had a cardiothoracic surgeon in the room, just ready, ready to go, just in case anything happens. And apparently, you took the took the uh, took that part of clavicle out. And you could put your finger back there and feel the vessels. I was like, that's a little too close for comfort for me. Um, but you know, that's that's a treatment for these SC dislocations. Yeah, now, it's all right there. I I actually just treated a patient a couple of weeks ago with a desmoid tumor uh, of his neck that involved his entire brachial plexus and subclavian artery. Mm. And um, we had this guy fully opened up. I mean, we did a midline sternotomy. We, I did a clavicle osteotomy. And this, this tumor, yeah, we were, I was looking at a beating heart and a breathing lung for Ooh. hours in this procedure. And I was like, man, I am in the wrong. Area. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> oh, man, that's scary. You know, uh, hopefully I don't see too much of that, but I might if I, if I get some posterior uh, SC dislocations. Yeah. Um, but so what, just moving forth on the clavicle, what is the typical treatment for a pediatric mid-shaft, cl mid-shaft clavicle fracture? Uh, non-operative, non-operative, non-operative for these pediatric patients. I mean, it's, it's possible to treat them with surgery, um, but 
you you typically do not. Um, if they are open fractures, obviously you want to IND them and stabilize them. Um, things like a floating shoulder. So if you have a clavicle fracture along with a uh, scapular fracture with dissociation of the glenoid from the scapula and you get a floating shoulder, that may be uh, recommended. And then if you're getting uh, like two to three centimeters of shortening through the clavicle, uh, those may be good ones to uh, treat operatively as well, just because uh, as the patient is growing, they they might recover some of that growth, but if they're already two to three centimeters short, they're just going to have a persistently short clavicle, even if they heal it, and um, their their shoulder function won't be as ideal as a uh, full length clavicle. So it may be worthwhile to treat the uh, significantly shortened or displaced fractures, um, and especially the I, I talked about open fractures, but also the impending open. So the the skin tenting, the skin uh, blanching, and concern for uh, soon to be open fracture, you wanna fix those too. Um, and I'm moving on a little bit further down the arm. Uh, uh, where's the majority of growth in the humerus seen? Yeah, this is gonna be from the proximal humerus. It accounts for like around 80% of the growth. That being said, there's a lot of remodeling potential for the proximal humerus. So a lot of I think the majority of these are, are treated non-operatively, which will actually, I guess here's the next question. Um, but anyway, so the majority of the growth from a proximal humerus is from the humerus is from the proximal humerus. And so what is the typical treatment for proximal humerus fractures? Uh, as you said, non-operative with the sling. Um, and then if they are over two-thirds the uh, proximal humerus diameter, you can always uh, try a, a closed reduction, um, but just be cognizant that the the biceps, the periosteum, and sometimes the deltoid can be interposed in that fracture and impede reduction. Um, you may need to pin uh, the fracture after the reduction if you're not able to get good um, kind of osseous fixation. So you put a couple of pins across the fracture and then take them out several weeks later. Um, you do have to be cognizant though, that uh, the axillary nerve is traveling right in that area where those pins go. So either uh, you want to make a, it, it's not a true percutaneous fixation because you're going to make a maybe a decent size incision so that you can dissect all the way down to the bone. Make sure that you're not getting that axillary nerve and you're putting those pins in and then closing that, that incision around the pins. But um, if, if you do have to open, um, you, it, it's a possibility. It's usually not required. One of my older pediatric attendings, uh, he was less, uh, uh, concerned about proximal humerus fractures. And uh, according to him, if the two fragments were in the same arm, then he would treat them non-operatively and they always healed. So mm. it was, that was a little, a little aggressive, but, um, <laughs> right. but I, you, you understand his point because I mean, if there's, if it's a six-year-old with a proximal humerus fracture and that is really displaced by the time that kid is 10, 
I bet if we got an x-ray four years after the fact, you wouldn't even be able to tell that the fracture even happened. That's how that's how good these kids are at remodeling and healing their fractures. So maybe there is some truth to that. But um, the older the older kids, the, the kind of the tweens or the or the young teenagers definitely may need a, a close reduction in pinning. Um, and then uh, going down to the shaft, we, we talked about this with the adults, but what is the degree of angulation that can be accepted for a humeral shaft fracture? Yeah, so it's similar to adults, it's going to be around 30 degrees, and you're going to treat this with uh, uh, with some functional bracing uh, or a splint or a sling. There are a couple different uh, couple different treatment options for these pediatric patients, but typically, again, you're going to treat these uh, non-operatively. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailer Ortho Podcast. We are back and venturing down this pediatrics road. Uh, so we hope that you all enjoyed it and that you all are listening and that you all are learning something. And until next time. St. John Associates is a physician recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They have an orthopedic surgery team who has over 16 years and hundreds of matches in the ortho market at no cost to physicians. Get started with your job today at stjohnjobs.com ortho. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us.